You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Kathleen Angunen is the author of the Nanotech Quartet, consisting of Queen City Jazz, Mississippi Blues, Crescent City Rhapsody, and Light Music. Her novel Bones of Time was a finalist for the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Her new novel is In War Times. Thank you for speaking with me, Kathleen. Thank you. Kathleen, I, I wanted to talk to you uh, about one of the unique things about your latest novel is that it's a, a science fiction novel that's set in the past. I find that our own history is, well, as Gibson has said, science fiction is actually about the present. And, and I think that's true in the sense that the, uh, the scientific milieu that we live in now is so, <laughs> so much more advanced than, than most people realize that most people don't, don't actually know what's going on in terms of how our own world and um, technological uh, situation are being manifest in, in our daily lives. And so the past, in my own, in my own uh, situation, gave me an opportunity to be extremely concrete about uh, what was going on. And even some of the things that I wrote about in, in war times, like the uh, the cavity magnetron and radar and the M6 fire the M9 fire director are are uh, manifestations of technology that are really not that well understood or known about uh, even now. So I'm hoping that in uh, in writing this that it will give uh, readers uh, better insight about the the underpinnings of of how these uh, how these technological advances come come about, and perhaps allow us to think in new ways about what's happening now and about how we can best use the technologies and the scientific information that we have today. Well, one thing that's really interesting, I think, about your book is it reminds us that you know science fiction, as it were. Um, is simply fiction that is about science in some ways. So when you start get talking about the development of the radar and the cavatron and that kind of stuff, it really it, you take the the history of science and kind of turn it into science fiction because from the perceptions of your characters, the things that would come in the future that are essential in their future is essentially our past. But to them, our our past is science fiction, a science fictional future for them. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think that this gives us, uh, as a reader, a little bit more intimacy. Uh, in other words, what, what's happening can play off our own expectations and our own, our own understanding of what we think actually happened at the time. I, I just think it gives it a lot of depth to uh, place it squarely in reality. A lot of times when you... Uh, Science fiction is uh, closely related to the idea that it's just so far out; it's it's on the on the very edges of possible or perhaps beyond, which is which is often true. But on the other hand, uh, like I said earlier, 
what's happening right now is is actually pretty strange in, in terms of the research that's being done in, in uh, uh, brain science and, and physics and um, just just all kinds of areas that uh, that I've that I try to keep up up with. Well, I'd like to talk about uh, some of the the specific technologies you talk about in in more times. The the development. I mean, it's really interesting to think to go back and think about. Uh, for example, you know the and you talk about this the, the war tech that went into the U boats and V two rockets. Could you talk about doing that research and then rewriting that history? Um, and from a science fiction perception? Well, uh, a lot of people believe that, uh, for instance, V and gravity's rainbow were, were kind of along those lines in terms of uh, thinking about what was going on at the time. And um, what was happening at the time was that our two, two the allies in the, the Axis powers, specifically, Nazi Germany were were involved in in um, research and development that were uh, extremely revolutionary, based on the the what was known as physics during that time, uh, and uh, and the fact is that their science, the Nazi science, the rocket technology, and everything was. Uh, <laughs> divided up by the Russians and, and the Americans, uh, even before uh, the surrender of Nazi Germany, and those scientists were whisked off in, in separate directions. So, I think that the, the the sense of what was happening at the time, and particularly in terms of the development of the uh, atomic bomb, uh, was uh, that it came as such a shock to everyone because. I think very few people realized that, that that was possible. And that was kind of what I was aiming at when I uh, developed my idea of the device that is used in in war times to possibly change history or to change human, the human predilection for war, uh, for the idea that that's the only path we can go down in terms of dealing with differences between us and, and other people or in, in dealing with their reaction to perceived differences. And I, I, I was pleased to find out at one point that that uh, that's the way that the uh, the atomic bomb was often referred to by those who were developing it. was It was called the device. So uh, it was that kind of, uh, I don't know, speed of development of, Available resources and available knowledge that I was uh, that I was kind of trying to uh, mirror in my my own development of the device. Now, now this device is, I think, a really great uh, concept, and I and I'd like you to talk a little bit about it and how you introduce it early in the in the novel. And one of the things I like about what you do with this uh, piece of technology is that it changes and what it does changes and our perception of it changes through the novel. Could you talk about that, uh, that kind of MacGuffin as a, as a literary uh, device? Yes. Our, um, the, the, the people who are involved in developing the device, uh, who, who are Sam Dance and his friend, uh, uh, Winklemeyer, who's known as Wink to his, his buddies, um, 
they they don't really know what it's going to do either, but they are very impressed. They have techn- technical backgrounds in, in chemistry and, uh, and in physics, and they are impressed by what they think it might do in terms of the plans that they have been given by Dr. Haddens, who is a... Uh, a strange, fringe-like person who has actually been at the center of the uh, scientific scientific renaissance in Europe, and uh, I'm I'm working more with Dr. Haddens in, in the book that I'm working on now, and uh, really kind of fleshing out her history. And so she, I postulate that she meets Lise Meitner, who who was instrumental in, in figuring out that nuclear fission, fission was possible, and uh, meets her, uh, Lise Meitner was working on the uh, front as, a, as an X-ray technician. Of course, X-ray, too, too was a, a very new technology at the time, and uh, her, her, um, her alternative was working to develop poison gas in Germany, and she decided to... Uh, to instead uh, be an X-ray technician, and uh, uh, Haddon's, of course, is a medical doctor at that time, and, and she meets Lise Meitner. So I'm going to get her. I'm trying to get her, you know, just very grounded in that uh, milieu. It was a time in which women were finally starting to be able to get an education, which was illegal in Vienna until uh, about 1896, I believe, or or maybe a little bit later. They, they were not allowed to attend high school. And I think that was true in a lot of Europe. So it was very hard for a woman to get an education, an advanced degree. Uh, any, women, any women who did do that, were um, they were able to do so because their family provided them with tutors. But uh, So her kind of, her kind of uh, point of view, I think, is... Uh, is meshing with these two American guys who are who have had a, a pretty pretty stellar education in in terms of uh, the technologies of the day, and her her uh, papers, her mysterious papers that are handed to Sam, are have to do with uh, things that are not widely known at the time. DNA was not. Uh, Understood. DNA was they they knew about DNA, but that they didn't know that that's what transmitted genetic material at the time. So she has made a lot of different leaps of uh, uh, intuition uh, based on her uh, less formal uh, schooling and and her uh, her uh, her infiltration of the the circles of, of learning in Vienna and Stockholm and. Uh, in Berlin at, at that time. Uh, I, one of the things that this this book um, has a, a kind of a, a quantum time travel, quantum reality theme, and, and I wonder if you'd care to talk about how you use that to um, enhance both the plot and the character development, because I think when you've got uh, these kind of alternate quantum realities, it gives you some unique uh, opportunities to uh, deal with the characters and, and uh, put them through changes that you can't put a characters through in a normal time stream. Yes, well, Dr. Haddens herself has has gone through the the changes that the device uh supposedly will cause in humanity when the um 
uh, when when its full effects become widespread, and and therefore I have her appearing in in the text at, at different times, uh, just kind of showing up. And I also have this happen with my my characters Wink and Sam, who are present at the um, uh, well present in a distant sort of way. They're on an observation plane behind the Enola Gay uh, when the, uh, the atomic bomb is dropped on Hiroshima. And uh, I, had, I actually met someone who was on such a, a plane and, and uh, used his uh, narratives uh, to, to give that scene a little bit of depth. And oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Let's pursue that for a second. How did you meet this person? I met him at a, a uh, kind of by accident at a conference for the fantastic and the arts in um, uh, Fort Lauderdale. My editor's wife, uh, Catherine Kramer, had had met him, and he and his wife were just down by the pool, you know. And and she met him and started talking to him and, and found out uh, what he had done. So later on, she she uh, was aware of the book that I was working on, and, and she introduced me. So. So I was able to talk to him for a while. Uh, um, one of the things that, that also, for, for all the technology in this novel, I think one of the things that, that's also really interesting is it has an interesting you know, vision of, of society back then because after World War II, or uh, shortly after World War II, which is when a lot of the, the uh, novel takes place, you know, the GI Bill had just come in. Um, post-war organized labor was really powerful. It's a different... America than the America we know now, and I one cannot help but reflect upon those differences as we're reading your your book. Yeah, well, thank you for pointing that out. It it was very different, and uh, I was born in 1952, and uh, just a very different sense of what is happening because I I really grew up in the shadow of World War II, as did everyone in the 50s. Uh, I, I think it was probably a lot more pronounced in Europe and in uh, and in England, not to mention Japan. But uh, we, as a victorious nation, really got into education, and um, the the uh, the people who had fought, and it was really a citizens' army because uh, people volunteered. My own father volunteered, and, and a lot of people were drafted. And they weren't trained soldiers. I mean, the, the training of them was uh, done very quickly, and the the uh, attitudes and the information that they brought to to their uh, their tasks, I think, uh, was much more individualistic than than perhaps today, uh, because they they felt really called. To, to action by Pearl Harbor, and uh, and in the society in the fifties that I grew up in was, as I said, I think very very concerned with education, especially with the formation of NASA in nineteen fifty seven, um, and the, uh, the <laughs> and the uh, appearance of Sputnik. Um, we became much more technologically. Inclined, we were much more engaged with the rest of the world. Uh, I think diplomatically, and and also scientifically, uh, than than we uh, might be in terms of our government today. And, and it was just a 
Uh, I grew up watching um, a, a series called, I think it was called The World at War. It was narrated by Walter Cronkite. And, and every, every Sunday I would watch little black and white movies of, of uh, troops and, and uh, explanations of various battles, which the, the soldiers themselves may have been in, but from their limited point of view, they, they really didn't have a big picture, and that was now becoming clear. You also incorporate your own father's experience and actual uh, letters into this novel. Tell us a little bit about what your father did and how you worked that into the novel. I think this is a really fascinating aspect of it. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. Um, My dad had had a couple of years of chemical engineering at the University of Dayton, and um, he uh, he had put himself through those years of school by working in a bakery at night, and he was... uh, you know, just really into uh, engineering and and technology. Um, he he dropped out of school for a while and um, just started working for the government, but not in a uh, he was not in the military. And uh, he worked at an explosives plant in uh, Milan, uh, Tennessee, for a while. And and when. Uh, uh, he he got into the war before he got into the, the service before Pearl Harbor, but it was difficult for him because he was very uh, he was myopic from the time he was he was very young. So he managed to get into this um, uh, company that was uh, a technological company, the Six Tenth, and uh, uh, he was then sent to uh, Aberdeen uh, proving ground for. Um, and that's that's where he began working on the M9 fire director, and and he and his his friends uh, there was a real life analog to Wink. His his name was John Wallace, and he and his friend were sent to um, to England to to deal with setting up the uh, uh, the supplies for for the invasion. So they were there in England for a year before the invasion. Uh, Assembling the M9 fire directors, doing troubleshooting, and then after the invasion, they were still in England for six months, and then they they uh, they went to France during the Battle of the Bulge and followed uh, the uh, the army as they were mopping up afterwards. So they went through France and Belgium and ended up on the uh, very close to the Rhine River. And it was a part of the, it's kind of a slice of the war that is not uh, covered much, because it was called the Battle of the Rhine, and um, they were pretty much there. They were in a British sector, so they, um, they, were, not, they were not as closely supervised, perhaps, as, as the fighting troops in, in other places. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and again, they were responsible for supplying the troops. So he had a very interesting... Uh, Six months, or yeah, it was about six months. They were there in uh, January of '45 and stayed until just before um, just before Pearl Harbor. I mean, just before um, Hiroshima in in August. And they were they were uh, actually on their way to to be sent to uh, set up their their uh, um, their shop on an LST in the Pacific. Uh, when when the war ended, 
Now, one of the, the most interesting uh, decisions of the war that I think was based around technology, and, and you touch upon this decision, I'd like you to talk about it, is the Coventry decision. Right. Well, uh, the fact is that the, um, the Allies uh, participated in, in as many atrocities, really, as the, the Germans did in terms of, of bombing civilians. And uh, one, of, one of the um, unfortunate aspects of war is that when you have information, intelligence, or, or technology that uh, might give you an edge, you, um, you don't want to let the enemy know that you have that information. So um, the Coventry bombing uh, occurred uh, because they, you know, they didn't want it to uh, uh, let, let the, uh, the, the Germans know that they knew that it was going to uh, be bombed because that would, that would give away the fact that they, that they had the, uh, the intelligence and the, the technology to, uh, to know that in advance. Now, throughout this book, and indeed all of your books, music plays a, a really critical part. I mean, your your first novel is called Queen City Jazz. The Nanotech Quartet is is all about music, and this too also treats music. Could you tell me just in, in general how big a part does music play in your life, and and how did it get into your writing? Well, obviously, it plays a huge part of my life, and uh, uh, I grew up, you know, listening to all the the pop hits on the radio, but I also mostly listen to jazz because that's what my dad uh, loved and listened to. And he, he uh, in the 30s, he, he started uh, listening to jazz. And in the, uh, in the book, there's a, a pretty cool uh, interlude where he talks about uh, when he, he first heard Jimmy Lunsford on, on the radio. Of course, they had big clear channel stations back at the time, and, and because jazz was the music of the day, he was able to um, see a lot of people. He would go to Dayton all the time. He was in Miamisburg, Ohio. He went to Dayton a lot to hear live music. Uh, Duke Ellington uh, came every summer. Um, so, uh, and and he, he, as often as he could, he would go to Chicago, and especially once he was in the Army, he was near... New York and, and Washington and Baltimore, and so he, he went there often. So um, he was not just your normal jazz fan. He played the saxophone, and he, uh, uh, he was in a band in the Army. Of course, it was a jazz band. They were all jazz bands. And um, uh, so I, I grew up listening to jazz and also got a little different point of view uh, I'd, I'd be listening to a piece of music. I might be, you know, five or six, and my dad would say, um, "What, what do you think that is?" And I said, "Well, I don't know." And he says, "Well, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, but it's uh, it was so stretched out of its uh, uh, <laughs> normal timing and notes and by improvisation that." If you knew that, you could see that that's where it came from, and you could see its evolution. But um, it just uh, is kind of a way of looking at, at life and in, in art in general, uh, at the evolution of art. And um, and I I do believe that um, I, I use a quote from uh, uh, Late Night Thoughts, uh, listening to Mahler's Ninth Symphony by uh, Lewis in there. In which he in which he says, 
uh, in effect, that um, he would like to propose a, a study of why music is important to us. And uh, a couple of the books that I've really used in, in my past few books are, um, oh, This Is Your Brain on Music by uh, Daniel Levitin and um, uh, Music, the Brain and Ecstasy by uh, Robert Jordan, uh, Jordan, I think. And um, Oliver Sacks' recent Musicophilia talks about... Um, talks about uh, music and perception and uh, uh, different odd little tidbit, tidbits about how, how we think of music and, and what, it, what it really means to us. So, uh, you know, we don't have the whole picture <laughs> on why, why we have music. I don't think there's any culture without music and, and why it is so important to us, but um, I, it just has very deep biological roots. And, uh, and I was completely smitten when I was very young. Um, one of the things that this novel does is that, uh, in, in war times that is, uh, it, it concludes, I think, in a, on, a, on a really beautiful and positive vision. And I think that's really interesting because while you conclude on this beautiful and positive vision, the implication is that our world is hopelessly fallen. And I wonder if you care to talk about that and, and what, what your thoughts are about our world. Well, obviously, since I live in this world, I, I can't truly believe that. But I, but I deeply believe that uh, our world uh, could, could improve a great deal uh, politically and, and technologically. And uh, I, I, think, I, I think a lot of it has to do with education. I was a Montessori teacher uh, for 13 years, and I had my own school for 10 years, and uh, I had 100 students and administrated the school and taught. And I came to understand, uh, when I took my Montessori training, I was not totally convinced that it was, uh, you know, of its efficacy. Uh, I did know that I wanted to, to work with preschoolers because I didn't let, I, I went to some of the best school systems in the country, but I I thought that my time had had been uh, grievously wasted, and I think that's true of most children when they get to be uh, a certain age. That what what's happening to them is not very very well targeted, basically, and it's not scientifically um, uh, done. So, uh, so I think that the more all of us know about our environment, about politics, about what is going on, about uh, just about anything will, will help us uh, improve the world that we're in right now because, I mean, it, it, is, it is very depressing. I've been reading a lot about Africa lately, um, various genocides, which of course have happened throughout history, not just not just recently, but it, it seems to be a human predilection, predilection and uh, about um, anthropology and the study of apes, um, chimpanzees, and our, our relationship to these creatures, about the development of language. Um, and I, I just think that uh, uh, the waste of war is just staggering. You have to 
just imagine you build things and then they're completely destroyed and you have to build them again. I mean, what a waste of resources and time and, and humans. So I just think that there, there has to be a better way. One of the things that really impressed me uh, about In War Times is that um, you, you turn it into a family saga, uh, and it's a multi-generational family saga, and we, you, you were talking about being a teacher, and, and I get now that makes sense because you really do show you know, uh, something that you don't often see in science fiction, you know, adults bringing up children in a, you know, a relatively normal circumstances, yet for all the uh, time and all the the vast number of characters that you you cover, it's it's a it's a really you know admirably terse novel. It doesn't seem um, short, but I mean it, it's it's very compact. When you, when you think of family sagas, you generally think of you know tomes, and this is definitely not a tome. Talk about creating that kind of family saga, that sweeping family saga, in a reasonable you know not size novel. Well, this has to do with editing. Uh, I have likened it to the. Uh development of the uh, human brain. <laughs> when we're young, we have a lot of uh, neurons that uh, are eventually pruned. And, and that's basically what happens when I write. A lot of writers can just go, uh, you know, think ahead, plan ahead, plan even chapter by chapter and section in the chapter of, you know, what's going to happen and how it's going to affect things. And I admire people like that, but that's not how I write. So the book itself was uh, at least a third larger uh, than than uh, than the, the the book on the shelf. And uh, what happens during the editing process is that, for me anyway, you you begin to see the book that you have produced the, that you're very close to as a writer. Uh, you begin to see it a little more clearly, and I think it's uh, it's basically. The uh, uh, trying to be reader friendly, trying to not slow the reader down, trying to get the information to the reader in in an economical way that will uh, keep them curious, keep them on the edge of their seat, keep them turning pages. And um, so, although there are definitely whole chapters and parts of the book. That I that I had to remove in the interest of uh, of that process. Um, probably, it, it makes for a better book. It, it's just it's just an editing process that that, you, that all books undergo. Now you're you're working on a sequel to the book. Uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, about it and and hopefully when when we'll get to read it. <laughs> Well, um, it's presently called This Shared Dream Called Earth. It it will probably be shortened to something like This Shared Dream or uh, who knows at this point. But um, I I, uh, I focus on the children who are left, uh, Jill, Brian, and Megan. And they're they're left, uh, and only Jill really knows what what happened in uh, in this world. And... And uh, so she she has a problem with this, understandably. She has a problem of responsibility. She has a problem of, um, you know, wondering how it might have been different. And so in this in this book, I'm working a lot on um, uh, neurological 
information. Uh, how, how does memory work? What is memory? Uh, obviously, all that there really is for us is the present moment and memory, which also exists in the present moment. And as a, uh, a former double major in, in philosophy as well as English, I've, I've pretty much grown up thinking about these, um, these uh, epistemological problems and uh, the fact is that all of the philosophy that I read when I was uh, in college is very much outdated because all of those people were just, uh, they, all they had to work with was their own mind and their own perceptions. And now we have, we're able to look at what's happening in the brain as we think, as we do things with functional MRI. And so um, I'm, I'm uh, reading with great interest the present research being done on things like mirror neurons. And um, I think this is part of, of the new, uh, new education-based <laughs> world that I, that I would like, very much like to see, you know, brought more into existence where uh, education is based on science rather than uh, sociological needs like uh, getting a lot of different immigrants speaking English and, and uh, uh, showing up on time, like when the factory opens and uh, following instructions, not talking back, not asking questions, in essence, not actually learning. And I think that, that all of these things that I'm, I don't want to make the, the book sound didactic because uh, there's, there's, of course, a lot of human drama and, and science fictional things going on in the book um, and, and Human and the human and personal and emotional things that, that make a book worth reading, uh, but those are those are some of the uh, the things that I'm incorporating into the book. I've been speaking with Kathleen Angunen. Her new novel is In War Times. Thank you for joining me, Kathleen. Thank you, Rick. I enjoyed it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>